Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest special edition for February 25th, 2022. The Justice Jackson edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, of course by Supreme Court savant Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And we have no John Dickerson today, uh, unfortunately, but no worries. We have Nate Persley, professor of law at Stanford University. Nate, welcome back to the GabFest. It's great to see you. Good to see you, too. So as we're taping on Friday, just uh, noontime, I don't actually has I, I just saw the headlines. I don't know. Has Biden officially announced the administration has has said that Judge Katanji Brown Jackson will be Biden's nominee to be Supreme Court justice to succeed Justice Breyer in that seat? Well, he announced it on his Twitter page, uh, but uh, which I guess is the way these things are being done now. But uh, the formal ceremony will be in a few hours. So, Emily, this is deeply unsurprising, right? Once Biden had had vowed during his campaign that his nominee, he would nominate a black woman, Jackson was very high on everyone's list. Yes, I think this is a pretty obvious choice for a couple of reasons. I think Judge Jackson was the favorite among a lot of liberals. And I think also because she'd recently been confirmed to the D.C. Circuit with three Republican votes in the Senate, she is the safest, um, at least in if such a thing is even possible um, in Washington these days. And so I feel like there's no surprise and no drama so far. And we'll see if that lasts. So, Nate, you come to us both as a as a legal scholar, but also as somebody who knows Judge Jackson and have known her for a really long time. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how you know her and what context you know her? Yeah. And, yeah. and then we can take some of the more interesting legal questions. Yeah. I, I, let me say that uh, in contrast to other times when I've been on your show, I am completely biased here. Uh, I grew up with Katanji Brown Jackson uh, in Miami. We've known each other since we're 12 or 13 years old. We went to Palmetto Junior High School and Miami Palmetto Senior High School together. Uh, and while I have become a you know law professor consumer of her opinions, like many other uh, opinions that come out of the D.C. District Court and, and D.C. Circuit, um, you know th- this is not a situation where I'm an unbiased, detached observer. Um, I, I knew Judge. It's even to call her Judge Jackson instead of Katanji is forced for me. But I, I, I knew uh, Judge Jackson uh, growing up in Miami. We became close I, through the debate team uh, in Palmetto Senior High School. Uh, and she really is the same person now that she was then. She is an honest, kind, giving person. Um, really, she was sort of an old soul even back then. Uh, I really could not be more thrilled uh, for her and really for the country if she uh, makes it to the Supreme Court. What was in the water at Palmetto High School that you have a Supreme Court justice potentially and 
a law school professor at Stanford. Also Jeff Bezos, I believe. Yeah, and Vic Murphy, the current Surgeon General, actually also was was right after us. Wow. Uh, and it's weird because you hear that and you're like, oh, well, this must have been some like, you know, uh, prep school kind of thing. This was a very kind of normal, large public high school. So what was in the water? Uh, you know, I, I think that... Uh, uh, nothing, nothing in particular. I think that um, th- there were some programs. I have to say, the debate program was one which produced a lot of people who got into the law, and, and I do trace a lot of my uh, interests and ambitions back to those those years as well. All right, forget you. We want to hear a good story <laughs> about Judge Jackson from that time. So one of the memories that I have from our time in high school was of her as a talented actress. While I competed in in uh, Lincoln Douglas debate, she was a national champion in dramatic interpretation, humorous interpretation, and original oratory. Uh, and so she would be doing these sort of one act plays uh, in competitions where you know she she would often win. But whether if it was a dramatic play, she would you would end up seeing uh, you know the judges crying by the end. If it was a humorous uh, play, uh, people were were laughing uncontrollably afterwards. And you know it, it just speaks to her ability to connect with people, uh, whether it's the defendants in her courtroom or whether it's uh, you know dealing with law students that she's trying to mentor or her clerks. Uh, she really is you know someone who connects with with people from all backgrounds and in all circumstances. I look forward to the videotapes of those theatrical productions surfacing. Yeah, someone's gonna someone's gonna find those. I bet. <laughs> so Judge Jackson was also my college classmate. I didn't know her, but I had we had friends in common. Everyone always spoke really highly of her, and I do think it's significant that of the three people on this call, she was in school with two of them. She is part of what Lindsey Graham this morning called like the Harvard Yale Express the, to the Supreme Court. Does it give either of you pause that here we go, yet another person who will be a justice in the Supreme Court who has, she was a public defender, but she's, you know, she's, she has very much the same kind of academic resume and legal academic background that so many of our justices have. Yeah. I mean, if I was like manufacturing her, I would have her go to a state school and somehow emerge with just the same kind of star-studded credentials. The reality is that Supreme Court picks tend to be super elitist in terms of academic education. Judge Jackson has two things going for her that are really going to help diversify the court in terms of its work experience. The first, as you said, is that she was a public defender, and I want to talk more about that. And the second is that she's a trial court judge. She has actually had to deal with um, implementing the court's rulings, not from the relatively high perch of being on an appellate court, but really having to do that in the courtroom every day. And so I think those features are significant. Nate, what do you think about well, this? You're going to defend. But she's an appeals court judge now, right? Just yes, yes, yes. But yes. that's super recent. Yeah. That's true. She's uh, She's been on the D.C. Circuit for about a year now. She was uh, um, appointed by Obama to the D.C. District court. She has more judicial experience than three or four of the current members of the Supreme Court when they were nominated. So, you know, she's not someone who um, is is sort of just being plucked out of obscurity. Let me sort of just, just on, on Emily's point about her educational background, and, and, and you were saying this as well, 
it would be nice if we could manufacture Supreme Court nominees, right? But we can't, you know, it's like, would she, if she had gone to a different uh, school, would she have gotten a Supreme Court clerkship with Justice Breyer? Would she have gotten the notoriety that she did, right? Um, and that's true for so many other uh, folks who've, who've been on the Supreme Court. You know, there are credentials that, that bring you to the attention of the people who make these decisions. In contrast to many of the people that that all of us went to college with and people who, who have these kind of credentials, I've never seen seen her as like a resume builder or ladder climber. She has always been someone who has, you know, she, she does the job that she thinks is going to sort of make the biggest impact, whether it was as a federal public defender or whether it was on the sentencing commission or whether it was a lawyer in private practice. And, and then later as a judge, um, she takes each challenge uh, as it comes to her and really uh, just succeeds in it. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Why don't you guys talk for a minute, Emily, you start, insofar as you've been able to look at Judge Jackson's career as a jurist and as on the sentencing commission and as a public defender, what are the themes? What might she be like as a justice based on what she's been like in her professional life so far? The opinion of hers that's gotten the most attention so far, because it has some great sound bites, is uh, when she was a district court, she wrote a super long, involved, detailed opinion about some of the Trump administration's efforts to thwart congressional oversight. And she stood up to that. And I think that it bespeaks someone who's just like willing to stand up against the encroachment of executive power. And that seems really important right now. Nate, what else, what do you want to add to that? If you read her opinions, her opinions are extremely long, extremely thorough. She is an extremely moderate person. They ring in the kind of totality of circumstances language that you see from Justice Breyer. She is that kind of judge. Um, and anyone who, who knows her, who's, who's uh, throughout her career and even before that, she's never been someone um, who, who is a firebrand. When the issue came to her about uh, whether... Uh, you know, in that case, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, was completely immune from uh, appearing before Congress. Uh, you know, she said, look, presidents are not kings. And that's, of course, uh, correct. But as, as Emily said, she, you know, she did this after uh, 200 pages of um, exposition of what the legal issues were. Do you think you might have said the same thing about Justice Sotomayor when she was nominated? I mean, there is a way, right, who, and I bring up Sotomayor because she has proved to be, you know, if there is a, like, really clarion call liberal on the court right now, it's her. I don't think I predicted that when she was coming from her lower court position. And I, you know, I just want to leave room for the idea that, like, these people are dummies. They know that if they hide some of their more, um, some of their light under the, a bushel in terms of taking really strong positions, that that's not likely to help them get confirmed, at least on the left right now. 
Well, that's true, but I, I, but she has not been strategic like that. And and this is, you know, if 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 I can contribute something to the national conversation on Ketanji Brown Jackson, it is that. It's like there are people who are genetically engineered to try to be Supreme Court justices, and there then p- create their life in a way that will lead them there. That is not who she is. She's just extremely workmanlike, very modest. You'll see this in the confirmation hearings. I actually think Justice Sotomayor and she had very different public statements uh, coming in. I mean, that that's what led to some of the controversy in the hearing with Justice Sotomayor, right? Sotomayor had given a speech um, before she was nominated talking about the empathy she felt as a Latina woman and judge. Um, I still can't believe that that was controversial, but that is indeed what happened at the time. If you if you go to like Ketanji Brown Jackson's most notable public speech, it was at University of Georgia where she talked about how difficult it was to be a lawyer and a mother. She was giving advice to uh, young women. I, I brought her out to Stanford uh, a while ago. She was here for a moot court or something. And it was it was really just thinking about the, the law and the legal careers and trying to mentor students. It was not sort of a call for activism, right, or, or uh, of anything. It was, it was really just trying to deal with um, these students and the things that they cared about. Emily, I think there will be a tendency, because it's a moment when Democrats are excited to have a new justice, a uh, a new person to talk about the first black woman on the court, which is just, you know, that's something for sure to celebrate or to, to be like at last for goodness sakes. But what we've seen is that this court has gone way off in another direction. It has gone heading off into parts of the wilderness that we didn't know they could get to. They are, they are excited to explore territories that have been off limits for a long time. Does it matter? Like, does it matter? I mean, you know, you have to feel like put someone on the court, so sure. But does the role of being a third person who was always in the minority on the cases that matter really make a difference right now? Should should Democrats be paying that much attention to the court at all? Because they're just going to lose and be disappointed. Well, they better pay attention in the medium to the long term. Because you're right, she is not going to have a deciding vote in a lot of cases. But the life of a Supreme Court justice, if she is lucky, is long. And um, if Democrats... That is dismally true. (laughs) So I think that it's important to think about how your question projects into the longer term future. And, you know, there is this giant looming question about the court if it continues to go off into these um, uncharted territories on the right. Is Congress, will the president at some point, will the American people try to rein it back in? So I think we just have no idea what the trajectory of Judge Jackson's record will be as a justice, but it's really important that she has the kind of personal attributes Nate is talking about. In the area of criminal law, the typical 6-3 division that we're seeing on the court on many of these controversial cases or high-profile cases sometimes breaks down, right? Because some of the conservatives or libertarians on the court don't have predictable positions on a lot of criminal law because they end up fearing state power or the like. And so her experience as a member of the Sentencing Commission and also as a, a public defender uh, actually may have an impact uh, on some of those cases. And those are really quite important. And so I think that, yes, on, on many of the things that we pay attention to, um, which are like the defining issues uh, for Supreme Court nominees, maybe, you know, she will just fill in where Justice Breyer left off. But then on some of these, these issues that fracture that coalition, she might be the deciding vote. 
And you know, about the Sentencing Commission, this is a contrast, I think, and hope between her and Justice Breyer. So when Justice Breyer was a staffer for Ted Kennedy, he helped come up with the federal sentencing guidelines, which were supposed to make sentencing more fair among defendants who committed similar charges, but were different, you know, in terms of things like race and class, but in fact, just made sentencing way harsher. And I think that being on the United States Sentencing Commission, Judge Jackson had a very close up view of that. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about the term and what kind of commissioner she was. But I don't know how you could be in that position and not come away with a real sense of reality about how harsh American federal sentencing has become. And this is also true of state court um, sentencing as well at this point. And she also, by the way, I mean, uh, this all draws on her biography. Her her uh, brother was a cop, you know, for many years. She she knows about law enforcement. She's seen it from all sides. And I think that she'll, she'll bring an important perspective to the court in that respect. And her uncle was given life in prison for a cocaine charge, I think in like the 1980s, was released in 2017 and died shortly after. So I'm sure we're going to hear about that. I mean, my other prediction is that when Republican senators ask Judge Jackson questions, they are going to really drill down on her record as a public defender. And we're going to hear about the worst crimes her clients committed when she was working in that capacity. And I really hope we hear from her a full-throated defense of what it means to be a public defender and what how crucial that role is in the American system. And I'm partly channeling here my intense frustration with the kinds of questions um, my friend Nina Morrison got recently. She is a district... <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not for Nina, but it was pretty funny. I mean, I guess it was Whoever funny. thought that like there would be a day when Ted Cruz was not the most loathsome member of the Senate, that Josh Hawley has now grabbed it. Right. And we should explain what happened. Um, Nina is an Innocence Project lawyer. Nina is an old friend of mine, so I'm not going to call her Ms. Morrison. And... Holly Cruz, I think a third senator, just went after the idea that she could have any compassion for criminal defendants at all, and especially tried to kind of blame her for, like, the rise in crime in Philadelphia because she had advised Larry Krasner, the district attorney there, on innocence cases. Anyway, I think that's a preview, potentially, of the kind of questioning we might hear if the Republicans decide to become aggressive. I don't. Th- so we haven't heard about any of those cases yet. I would have thought that in the D.C. Circuit confirmation process that we would have heard about some of those clients. And so um, it, it's certainly possible that, that she'll receive the same treatment. But at least as far as I'm aware, I don't know of any sort of, of those worst case scenario stories as applied to her defendants. But the thing is, even if, like, she represented murderers, if yeah. that's her job, then that's her job. And, like, there shouldn't be anyone who is off limits. That's, uh, yes. That it, and if we lived in that world, that would be a great place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, personally, thanks for bringing some personal memories of Judge Jackson. Emily Bazelon, thanks for bringing your usual expertise. When will the hearing start, if you had to guess? Uh, so within a month is my guess. I have no idea. It's a, it, may, it may be Ukraine dependent. We'll, we'll, we'll see. It, uh, there's a lot of news these days. Right. Yeah, it's a hell of a day to announce this. That is our GabFest special. The GabFest is produced this week by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcast, and Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast. 
follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and Nate Persley, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah.